0: I'm Yvette Benavides, and this is The Lonely Voice from Book Public on Texas Public Radio featuring acclaimed author Peter Orner discussing short stories you might not have heard about but that we believe help us understand that even in our intense awareness of human loneliness, we are connected. In his memoir in Essays, Am I Alone Here?, Peter Orner includes an essay about Frank O'Connor that reinforces many of my own thoughts on the short story. The title of this short series is taken from O'Connor's book, A Study of the Short Story, the one Orner believes to be one of the few out there about the short story that mostly gets it right. I remember encountering that essay a few years ago and experiencing a pang of a resonance that was so strong, it made me swoon a little, the way perhaps we all feel when a writer seems to have read our minds or echoed something we have thought only in the quiet of our own souls. The feeling was doubly palpable when I read Orner's essay about Gina Berriot. I discovered the work of Gina Berriot in 1990, and I never met another person who knew who she was or appreciated her stories as much as Peter Orner seemed to. I was also aware that he wrote the introduction of the 2017 edition of Women in Their Beds, a collection of stories by Gina Berriot. In that essay, Orner discusses Berriot's story, The Overcoat. Yes, that's the title. Most readers know Gogol's The Overcoat, and this is Berriot's homage to him, and what a tribute it is. Writes Orner about Gina Berriot's The Overcoat, this is Beriot, even when it's too late, even when it's long past too late. Characters grip their humanity like Gogol's clerk with a vigor even they don't know they have. When I interviewed Peter Orner about his latest story collection, Maggie Brown and Others, he described the influence that Gina Berriot has had on his work we soon discover that we share a passion for other writers that are unsung and unanthologized. We rather enjoy keeping the stories to ourselves in some ways. The books and stories are like the gold coins the miser counts out and then secrets away and thinks about in stolen moments. Because they make bearable, a world that may not treasure stories, really, really good stories. But we also feel that there might be no better time to spill the secrets, These small, quiet masterpieces that show us that even when we are at our most intensely lonely, we are one voice in a grand euphonious chorus. So that's the story of The Lonely Voice on Book Public. This is Episode 1, The Overcoat, by Gina Berriot. Here's Peter Orner reading a brief excerpt from the story, Our conversation follows.
1: No one sat beside him, and the voices of the passengers in the dark bus were like the faint chirps of birds about to be swept from their nest. In the glittering tumult of water beyond the swift arc of the windshield wiper, he was on his way to see his mother and his father, and panic over his sight of them and over their sight of him might wrench him out of his seat and lay him down in the aisle.
0: Let's start with the name of this book public special series, The Lonely Voice. Do you want to talk about that and demystify the name? I think it can also help frame for the listener what we're doing here with these special episodes.
1: And The name comes from, from a book by Frank O'Connor, which is a, ostensibly a study of the short story from the point of view of somebody who was a great practitioner of the art. I think what's unique about Frank O'Connor's Lonely Voice is that there's very few books in my mind that address the sort of outlier nature of the story in the context of novels, poetry, nonfiction, memoirs, whatever. I think the short story sort of is is kind of off to the side. And I think Frank O'Connor's book addresses that sort of of a voice from the corner of society or, or a voice from underground, I think his being Irish had something to do with where he was coming from on where the story was coming from. He talks about how the Irish are especially great at stories. I think he was on to something with the idea of the short story being a lonely voice, a singular voice coming from a part of society that didn't often listen to. And I've always loved that notion.
0: He talks about, you know, and this is his term, submerged populations. It's sort of like the outlier, as you said, or the everyman. And he uses the words romantic, individualist, and intransigent to describe figures that are lonely voices in short stories. So if we talk about the short story, The Overcoat, but the one by Gina Berriot, not the one by Nikolai Gogol. I think when people hear the overcoat, they think about Gogol. But our focus on this particular episode is Gina Berriot's story of the same name. So there's this notion in O'Connor about the intense awareness of human loneliness. And that's really something we see in Berriot's story, don't you think?
1: Yes. Yes like other great short story writers, that was her territory that she was mining. People who were faced with a a loneliness that was, I don't know how to describe it, really. I mean, without talking about her stories, but, you know, kind of real existential loneliness.
0: Yeah, it's the sense of, well, if, if we talk about this story, for instance, the idea of the protagonist, Eli... He's the source of our focus for the story. He's on his way to see his parents. He hasn't seen them in a long time. And he said it to Seattle. And it's just palpable how alone he is. I mean, one of the first things we read in the story is that these two friends have sort of taken care of him and provided this coat for him. It's like Eli used to be lovable. She, The girl who provides the coat for him used to love him, used to be his lover. And so there, then there's this question of he hasn't seen his parents in so long, and it seems like these are his only friends, and he used to be lovable, but he's not lovable anymore. So what's really going on with Eli at the beginning of the story?
1: The story is so compressed. How many pages are we talking about? Six?
0: Yeah, something Seven? like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um and you, like you say, Eli hasn't seen his parents and it's been 16 years. He left home when he was 16. So he's now 32. And Barry opens the story with, like you say, a friend, ex lover, gets in this code at Goodwill, figuring that this code had already lasted almost a century. It'll be good for Seattle. It's going to rain and it's, you know, the weather's going to be rough and, this, this coat is going to protect you, Eli, when you go home to see your parents after 16 years. And then you quickly find out that Eli, I think some people might call him a junkie. I don't think Gina Burial ever would have, right? You know, I think Gina Burial was writing about a guy named Eli who's going to see his parents. He's been through a lot, including uh, what sounds like a pretty serious drug problem. And he gets on a bus and he goes to Seattle and there's a beautiful passages about him on the bus. Heartbreaking. He's not even there yet. He hasn't even seen his parents yet. Right. And, uh, and it's such it's a simple story, but you know, why is he going, why is he going to see his parents now? Thought a lot about this a lot over the last few days. Um, he's dying. Right. And you know, that's what you do. You go and I guess you, try and tie up some loose ends.
0: It doesn't feel like he's trying to make amends because there are all these intimations about how terrible his childhood was, and we sort of figure out why he would leave home at such a young age. But it doesn't feel in the story like You know, he knows he's very sick and something terrible could happen, and so he has to go um, make amends in some way. I, I always feel like he's on this, he's trying to bring compassion to them. Whether they can receive it or not, we'll see, right? We can get to that. But it feels almost like his whole point is to bring them something, not to take something from them.
1: I think you touch on almost like unbearable beauty of the story that, that a lesser writer, most writers would have it be some kind of reckoning, some sort of, you know, having it out with the dad for being abusive, something along those lines. But you're right. I I don't know if he's doing that consciously. I, I think he's almost kind of swept along by this need to just face them. That's all just face them, I think. And, and, and yet, he does, like you say, he brings them something out of the past, I guess.
0: With Gogol's overcoat, we know that this coat is um, a weapon from the weather, right? It's, But it's also a symbol of prosperity for the protagonist. But th- this overcoat, obviously, I mean, he's in Seattle and it's cold and it's raining. It's offering him that functions in that way that coats do. But there's this bit about how he covers himself up with the coat and he feels like he's that kid again in growing up in Seattle under the covers while his parents are drinking and fighting. He's quite ill. We don't really know what the illness is that has ravaged his body, but we know that he's been through the prison system. He, we know he's. Encountered social workers and therapists. I mean, we get, we know in a very compressed space, as you say, that he's had all this help, but he has somehow slipped through all of those systems basically unaided. Like he can look back and think about the therapist, and you don't have the sense that, um, He has been helped. I mean, it's almost like he is this helpless guy. And now here he is at 32, having survived all of these things. um, And he's still 16 or younger.
1: Right. That line that you refer to goes like this when he's in bed while his parents are fighting. Then he imagined he was a boy again, home again in the house in Seattle, under covers in his own bed, While his parents drank the night away, unprotected from them, but protected by them, from the dreadful world they said was out there. And then it goes on. then he thought about the strangers he'd met out in that world, like you say. The ones who said, tell me about your parents, Eli. The ones who said they were there to help him. Smirky parole officers and smug-faced boy psychologists in leather jackets, et cetera. The compression there is totally remarkable because you get the entire, I hate to use the word backstory because I don't believe in that notion. I don't think a backstory is really a backstory. I think it's an ever-present story. And that's who Eli is Mm -hmm. And we see him. And in that moment when he has that memory, he's lying on the bunk in his father's fishing boat. Because the story is divided up so beautifully, he... Eli goes to Seattle to find his parents. They're not living together anymore. Because he can't quite face his mother, he first goes to his father. And that's where he has that memory and that's where Burial brings in what a suggestion of what he's been through.
0: I want to ask you about that. Why does he avoid the mother? And he even even after he encounters the father, um, after so many years, he still waits two more days. What, why is he avoiding the mother?
1: Guilt, I think. I think he feels responsible for having left at 16 his mother to face his father and the world alone. But he's 16. How can, we, how can he even expect himself to be the one to protect her, but doesn't have to be rational to be the driving force, right? I think it's harder to see her than it is to see him. And as beautifully written as the scene with the father is, the scene with the mother is truly, you know, and we could talk about Gina Burial and the fact that, you know, that she never quite got the recognition that she deserved and all of these kinds of things and, and the other great stories that she wrote. But I would say the scene with the mother really is one of the most breathtaking, and just harrowing scenes that I can think of. Again, I promised myself I wasn't going to be hyperbolic. So I, mm-hmm. so I I'll <laughs> cut myself off. But it, it truly is, as somebody tries to write stories, I just, I can't, I can't believe how she pulls it off.
0: Well, take us there. So when he, he does go to the nursing home and there she is, And he sees, he knows her when he sees her profile. And she's sitting a certain way and her red hair. And then he can't back down. (laughs) You know, that that scene is just, you feel he has his coat on. He has his cap on. um, He's skeletal underneath there. It's almost like he's in there wearing this disguise. And he has to say to her, I'm Eli. It's Eli. It's so easy to just discount the scene and say she's not all there. She doesn't even remember. She just remembers a few details. What difference does it make? But actually, it's the things that she does remember that is, as you say, just will absolutely break your heart.
1: You said that he didn't go to see her because he can't, you know, maybe he just he's not ready yet. I mean, when he first arrives in Seattle, he spends three days in a hotel because he can't quite face the father, and then he has to spend another two days. Uh, Barretts is wandering around Seattle before, presumably. My read on it is that, he, that he's sort of looking for that he doesn't know exactly where she is. But I have in my notes, just in the margin, I said, "Well, there, can't, you know, there's only so many nursing homes in Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. So eventually he finds her, and then, and then there's this scene." There's a scene that goes on for, maybe just just over a page, Mm -hmm. where she might seem like she's not all there. But uh, he says, "Uh, Mother, I'm Eli. He said, Eli, your only child. You're right about that, she said. Had one, and that was it. Well, no. Had another, but lost it in the womb. Fell down or was pushed. Things come and go. I figure they go more often than they come. Not much came my way, but I lost more than I had, if you see what I mean. She gives us, like, a speech. And then he says, and this is where I get, you know, the sense of guilt. Mother, I wish I'd stayed around. He said, I wouldn't let him hurt you anymore. Who hurt me? Dad did. Oh, him. Once in a blue moon, I get a postcard. I mean... You know, on like a technical level, just having bad dialogue. Who hurt me? Dad did. Oh, him. Once in a blue moon, I get a postcard. You know, anyway.
0: That's that compression you were talking about where we don't... And that's a very Frank O'Connor thing to say, this uh, sort of anti-exposition, anti-backstory, you know. It's like, no, because this is is the story, and it's not... um, it's not anything we can boil down to some formula. This is just, you know, uh, just genius on some level that's really hard to, to talk about or define. But exactly what you said, and I'm looking at my copy, things come and go. I figured they go more often than they come. And that is the story of her life, you know, in that sentence. And we know we don't have to have... This flashback, this long, enduring flashback scene of the abuse that went on. We get it in a sentence, and we know exactly how terrible it was and how traumatic it was for him. And now I see why you're talking about guilt. Like there's this idea of, and then he left.
1: And I would say, just to that, I'd say like guilt for blaming her not just guilt for him having left, but I think the story carries a lot of weight in terms of just him feeling like she didn't protect him either and then feeling the weight of that. Well, again, seven pages, it's a full-on family without a lot of context. Barrieul—you know She wrote novels, beautiful novels. She, she could have expanded this and made it the saga of this sad, pathetic, three people, right? You know, she didn't. And the compression that you say, it is genius. And, and, and I, I don't, honestly, I don't think I've ever quite, like, seen anything, like, akin to the dialogue in this scene with the mom. So emotionally charged that she has to be so careful. And, and I feel like it, it is incredibly, I mean, it's an incredibly emotional story. But burial her um, I don't know, her sense of control here, and even the funny, you know, who hurt me, Dad did, oh, him, once in a blue moon, I get a postcard. <laughs> you know that's funny. and And I think that's how she gets how she partly how she manages it.
0: She does such interesting things with the language, like with the syntax, where she says, the comb went cautiously the comb went cautiously through the tangle of flame red and gray curls. The comb. She doesn't say, you know, she ran the comb through her hair. The comb went cautiously. It's just where she where she puts the, um, the action, you know, where she moves our eye to. Is, it's so interesting to me. And it is so Particular. I mean, it is so particular to to burial, it
1: seems like the comb might be. And I mean, I didn't notice it until you said it, really. But at Eli's point of view, it's only so much that he can take. So what does he do? He focuses on the comb. She's combing her hair, which is just, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to be like all light or crafty, but if you, you think of her action. I mean, she's got this red hair. She still has her red hair after all these years. There's another sentence in the story that indicates that, you know, both her both his parents were older parents mm-hmm. when he was sixteen. So, you know, she's getting up there at this point. And there's something I think a suggestion that she's you know, she's proud of that hair. And then she's combing it in in front of him. And at this point in the story, because we're backing up slightly, she doesn't necessarily, as far as we know, have any idea who's sitting in front of her. Mm-hmm. She's uh left the the confines of the inside of the nursing home. She's outside, basically facing a, a wall, kind of almost like Bartleby in a sense. Mm. And she's out there in her sagging sweater, her pink socks, and 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 Beryl her says her her fluffy shoes. And then comes the comb. You know, it's just like, you know, if you can't, if if the reader, and you know, I think we'll talk about this maybe another time. But like, if you're going fast. Here, you might miss all this and you might think like well what the hell happened (laughs) you know but but if you slow down a little bit and you like truly see that see that you have a guy who hasn't seen his mother in 16 years she's definitely out of it she's in a nursing home she's out there basically uh, you know there's a brick wall not sure if she's facing it or not um she's on a bench and she's combing her hair and that's when he says, Mother Eli." and then, then she gives that speech. It's just, I, you know, I, I'd love to, we don't know very much about burial practice, just a little bit that's out there is I think she revised and, and wrote deeply, deep into the night. Um, but I, 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 my sense of this story is so delicate. I, mm-hmm. I would love, just love to know how she did it.
0: So something that you said a little bit ago brings me back to this, Part of, you know, she's proud of her hair. You know, it's like she suddenly she moves to maybe even the days before she was with Eli's father. She says, I don't see as good as I used to. In the past, I used to read the teeniest print. When I was a girl, when I was a girl, believe me, I was the smartest in my class, the best looking too. It wasn't just my red hair; it was more, you know. It's just like she she go she skips over <laughs> the um, the right. years with the father to uh, the days when she was young and maybe felt a lot of hope and potential for her life.
1: Yeah, and like you said, initially when we started to talk about this scene, she damn well knows who he is. She's she. This is how that she's suddenly ready to talk. On this day, in this moment, because Eli's now in front of her, now he's gonna, you know, talk about her, uh, her, her childhood and and how her hair drove everybody wild. It's just a, I think of like somebody who's just weeks and even years not talking to anybody, and suddenly, you know, someone out of the past comes, their, their son, and then they start, you know, reviewing their life.
0: What do you make of the
1: earthquake? I think listeners would be like, oh my God, this story. This story. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you know, I'm, we put it, There's Gina Berry has a great sense of humor. And even in this story, I think it's, there is a great deal of humor, but, you know, this is pretty devastating stuff. And I think it's worth, you know, mentioning at some point that, you know, the the inspiration that she may have received from Gogol. But basically, like, I don't know, the way I see this, today because I read it differently every time I read it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get a sense of uh, a Burial as a writer kind of just sitting there with these two and almost waiting for them to, to talk. And and he says this line, which is after what you described about the hair. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's one of the most I mean, there's a couple places where it just you know, it gets me mm-hmm. even more than he says look at me, he begged, come across. You know, like, who the hell is Eli? We don't have any real notion of him. His father says he was smart. He tells his girlfriend earlier in the story. He was smart. I and mean, Eli, my, my sense of Eli is Eli's Eli's so many things, you know, and I think that's the greatness of Barry is that all her characters never can be pigeonholed. So, like, okay, Eli's done a lot of drugs in his life. Okay, he's He's a dying 32-year-old drug addict. But Barry all knows that in that person has, you know, a gazillion multitudes, right? And so he has this line, look at me, he begged, come across. I mean, where did that come from? Like, come across. It's like begging her to, like, to, 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 to connect with him. And that's when she says, almost casually, <laughs> We had ourselves an earthquake today. Did you feel it? Bricks fell down. We thought the whole damn place was coming down. And he says, I wasn't here. And she says, were you scared? I wasn't here. Go on. I bet you were scared. And then he says, I died in it. And he rationalizes to himself. doesn't make any difference. He can enter her, her uh, whatever she's talking about, her fantasy, her, her earthquake story. Why not? Even if he wasn't there, I mean, he can enter that story. What What has he got to lose? And 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 that's when I think that if there's a high point in the story, that's what happens with what happens next.
0: Because we know he's been there in that city, and there was no earthquake. Those um, imperatives come so close together that they're on either end of that part where she's talking about herself when she was young and pretty and could read the teeniest print, right before that he says, Mother, don't be afraid to look at me. And when she finishes that bit, he says look at me. And that come across that, those two words, come across is unusual and at the same time Mm -hmm. um, heartbreaking.
1: Utterly. Come across meaning, I mean, I read that in so many ways, but like come across, like just, just join me. Come, come, come across the, I mean, I read it literally, I guess, <laughs> in my first and foremost is come across the, the gap between us. You're on the bench and where I'm standing, come across, come come. From, not literally physically. I think just because I don't think he even expects that they don't touch ever in this story, but I think that's what he's asking for.
0: And he just gives in. He says, I wasn't here. Were you scared? I wasn't here. And then he just said, as you say, he's just like, all right, then I died. It's such a mysterious scene when, you know, until you really enter that space, which is remarkably easy to do with burial. Even though the characters are just roiling in dysfunction and disappointment and sadness and, and and we're sitting there with them <laughs> you know w- watching it like it's a tennis match you know it's it's impossible to look away.
1: I feel like Berria looked out at the world and, and and wanted to honor what I think she thought that she saw as a great deal of suffering out there and I don't think she was indulging in it. you know what I mean I don't think she was a suffering tourist. I think that she would see things, you know, out in San Francisco where she lived in the 80s and 70s and, you know, a lot of heartbreak. And this is one of the saddest stories I've ever read, much less from her. I mean, it's one of her sadder probably probably one of her sadder stories, too. But uh, I just get a sense that she wanted to honor the, the, the people that she saw. You know, and, and, and get into their heads and not sugarcoat and also not um, pretend that everything was going to be OK.
0: That's the thing, too, about short stories. I feel like we don't read these stories, um, you know, that, that are sort of branded already for us by Frank O'Connor or by, you know, by Gogol and Chekhov and every, everybody that came uh, before and after burial that they're just sad. Like, are all short stories sad? Are all, you know, is it always going to be about intense loneliness and lonely voices and outliers and submerged populations? Well, yeah, because all stories are about loss because all our stories are really at the root around this notion of loss. I I feel like I want everyone to think about this idea that the stories aren't just sad, like that's just too easy to say that and move on, even though they wreck us, right? (laughs) I mean, I can't talk to anybody after I read Burial. I need a, a few hours. But from the standpoint of the reader, there is much more going on. And there's much more to learn, I think, because of what you you were saying before about burial I feel like no other writer knows burial as well as you do in the way that you you've studied her so intensely and maybe it's an unfair question for you but what can you tell us about this idea that they're not just we're not just wallowing in it we're, there's really something no, to learn yes. here
1: no I mean she didn't wallow ever and I think part of the economy of her work, even in her novels. doesn't she doesn't wallow ever like that isn't something she does and i think that's honoring too also like she can be very very funny but i think as as the story like you said that loss often is the core of of a of a a great story but they certainly they can be hilarious and funny right and 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 we're going to talk about stories like that um I, one thing I came across, I mean, we don't know much about burial and, you know, I mean, I, I don't know much about her, just mostly from her stories. There's very little external stuff about her, which I, I kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. um, would I, would I love a biography of Gina burial? Absolutely. Will there be one? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. But she did give an interview, um, and in the interview, she gave a, a few, uh, but one, in, this is published in uh, The Tea Ceremony, which is a posthumous book, and she refers to Gogol's The Overcoat. I thought I'd read it real quick. If there's a recurring theme in my work, it's an attempt at compassionate understanding. In Gogol's great story, The Overcoat, there is a description of the poor copying clerk's fed, threadbare overcoat, how the cold wind got in across his back. I don't know why those lines move me so much, except when you visualize how the cloth has worn out without his knowing until suddenly one day he's surprised by that cold invasion. Isn't that a description of an entire life, she says. And, and it's worth noting that Gogol's The Overcoat is a comedy. It's a comedy. It's a funny story. Even, even, even at its most heartbreaking, it's, you can't help Maybe we shouldn't laugh at the clerk, but we do. I guess why I love Varial's work so much is that she um, she's just willing to spend time with people that a lot of people wouldn't spend time with, and I think that's what she learned from Google. Sadly, that a lot of people wouldn't spend time with. I think people there are people in society that we don't want to see very much of, and we all know that's true.
0: Oh, I. I absolutely agree with that idea. I hadn't really considered the way that if we're going to talk about O'Connor's submerged populations and then this poor, a cocky fellow, you know, whose coat is so threadbare, the the, the tailor can't even fix it for him anymore. Um, and this whole sort of identity becomes <laughs> wrapped around this coat and... Um, it's like he's only some he's somebody if he if he wears the coat. I mean, Berio really seems to understand that. It's so easy to say the short story is about every man you know the the short story is what democratized literature, okay Well, then show us well, and Berio does it with story after story,
1: yeah. To my mind, very few people have done it quite as intensely and as beautifully. And, you know, again, we don't know much about her. We know that she grew up in uh, Southern California. Her parents were locked in Jewish immigrants, not wealthy at all. Her father was, a, he was an editor of a some kind of jewelry trade publication. She loved her father. He, he died. He died young. And, and she took over his sort of editing job and that's how she got into writing. As far as I understand, she never studied much formally. Um, and, uh, her mother who features in a lot of her stories, uh, at a certain point began to go blind and there's some absolutely breathtaking passages, uh, that describe that. Um, but I think she's just somebody who just, I don't know, by, by virtue of what happened, uh, the little that you can put together biographically, you know, I think she had to start, like she was actually writing these stories to, to help her fa- family make a living, if you can believe that, <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that like <laughs> intensely literary stories would have brought in any, any significant amount of cash, it's hard to believe. But um, I think there was a certain necessity that she really had to teach herself how to do this you know and uh and i, I just think she's very uh unique i mean I, I just there's very few writers that i could compare to her
0: so if we're gonna have uh, a series called the lonely voice about the short stories that we want to celebrate and think people should know about i think uh, gina Berrio is a good place to start.
1: Absolutely. Again, one that might not jump out at people if they love stories. She might not be the person on the tip of their tongue, but that's kind of the point.
0: Let's think about it this way. So I'm a little self-conscious in this whole parsing out this story, maybe especially this story by Gina Burial, because it seems to run really counter to an idea that she would appreciate. To take it apart, to and to sort of talk it through instead of just reading it and letting it live with the reader. Do you? How do you feel about that? How? Do, what do you think about that? Do you think it's something? I mean, I, I. It's like I want people to know about Gina Barrio because she is such. She's so meaningful. She's such a meaningful writer to us. Um, but then what? <laughs> right. It's like, why talk about it? I,
1: here's what I think. I think, I think she would have appreciated us talking about Eli like he was actually like alive. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think she'd like to hear the stuff about her and how great she is or not great or whatever, whatever, where she comes from. But I think she would get a kick out of, and maybe even sort of uh, feel good about the fact that we are talking about Eli and his parents literally. Cause I mean, they are alive to me, like completely. And and that's why the story isn't, that isn't ultimately sad is because I, I just feel like she gives, she gave them like life. And so, I I feel like that emphasis feels right. Like that, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I do know what you mean. I think she would appreciate that we we struggled with the idea of talking about her. (laughs) Like we had that, you know, (laughs) we had that thought and then we kept talking about her.
1: (laughs) Um, Right. And, And she's a total, like, I don't you know there's nothing really that I, I i don't know much about her except that uh, just to, to to feel like i know her people and that feels like i know her
0: yeah i hear that i so the the notion of we all came out of gogol's overcoat right we, we came out of burial's overcoat
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> i just love the idea you know, of coming out from under this physical thing, this big old coat.
0: Here's Peter Orner again, reading one more brief excerpt from The Overcoat by Gina Berrio.
1: Off in a corner facing the wall, he covered his head with the overcoat and in that dark tent wept, baffled by them, by the woman over there on the bench combing her hair again and by the old man on the rocking boat. They were baffled by what had gone on in their lives and by what was going on now and by whatever was to go on. And this was all they had to offer him. Eli, come back to them, baffled enough by his own life.
0: Gina Berriot is the author of The Overcoat. It's published in Women in Their Beds by Counterpoint Press. Peter Orner is the author of Maggie Brown and Others. It's just out in paperback from Little Brown. Peter Orner holds the professorship in English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. Don't miss an episode of Book Public and future episodes of The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner, as well as pop-up book reviews and author interviews. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.